you are not going to believe what people, how people talk about Nahum. It is unbelievable. Matter of fact, let's just. Can, I'm going to ask this, but I think it's really important. It's important to me. So if you don't like raising your hands, I ask you for my sake, just so I can see if I'm right on this. How many of you have ever raised your hand on this, please? How many of you have ever heard a, uh, a, a series of sermons from the book of Nahum before in a church? One, one. That's it. There's a reason for that. There are actually scholars who believe, well, we'll get to it in a second. Mr. Zarin just read from Nahum chapter 2 about the destruction of what? The destruction of Nineveh. And here's the deal. At the destruction of Nineveh, the world clapped. The year is 612 B.C. And it changed the world. Let me ask you, do you, if I give you some dates, can you give me a context, some things you think of? For instance, the date is 30 to 33 A.D. Did that change the world? What was the context? Christ's death. The date is 313 A.D. Historians. Constantine, the emperor of Rome, supposedly makes a profession of faith. I wasn't there. I have no idea. Did that change the world? Yeah. Christians were no longer persecuted. The date is 1517 A.D. Hammer time? <laughs> what happened in 1517? Hammer time. That's helpful for all you young people. You should hammer time, right? What hammer were we talking about? Martin Luther, the Reformation. One thing I have, and I don't know why it escaped me, but growing up, I, I, I always took the Reformation as kind of a European thing and secluded to European. When did, when did Columbus come to this world? 1492, before the Reformation. And after he came, who then came? The Puritans. Folks, the, the founding of our country, the, 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 the uh, 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 population of the white men, if you will, or the Europeans in our country was during the Reformation. And for some reason, I never put those two together at all. But that's what it is. Let me do another one. 1914. World War I. Did that change the world? Let me ask you, is the context different in every one of them? Here's another one. 1776. Did that change the world? 2001. 
Twin Towers, did that change the world? Many of those things were changing the world because the world powers or religious powers, whatever you want to look at it as, came to a halt or was severely damaged. How many understand that? 612 was that number in B.C. The Assyrians ruled everything. The Assyrians were barbaric. The Assyrians were wicked. The Assyrians were horrible. And they were absolutely demolished by God in 612. In 612. And when Nineveh fell, the world clapped. Complexion of the Middle East and the surrounding areas totally changed. Nineveh, the city that represented the cruel and barbaric Assyrian Empire, fell to a coalition of Medes and Babylonians in 612 B.C. And the world clapped. Why? The oppressors were destroyed. How many of you have ever been in a, you don't have to raise your hand, but you, you all been in a high school and you've probably been bullied. It's just what happens, right? And by the way, today we want to make it all peaceful and everything. Listen, there's always going to be oppressors in a, until Jesus comes. But there was, man, the bully got their just reward. How many remember those times? So I was a scrawny little runt in a Christian school. I mean, scrawny? Uh, oh, my goodness. I'll tell you this. Ten years after I was married, I was still 125 pounds. That tells you what I was like in high school, right? And I was, I was always picked on by the pastor's kid. What do you do to a pastor's kid? And you're in the Christian school. How many get that? Well, he, he hauled off and just started, just went, went after me and laughed and turned around and started to get a drink at the drinking fountain. I said, there's my opportunity. <laughs> so all 100 pounds of me was in my right foot into his midsection. And do you know what? All the school clapped. Was that right of me to do that? Absolutely not. Did my flesh feel good about it? I'm not going to lie and I'm not going to divulge that information. <laughs> but the reality is that literally the teacher came back and said it's about time. The reality is this. There are moments in history when everything changes. Those moments in history that we just gave you are what we're talking about in Nahum. It is a moment when God comes down and totally destroys and judges a wicked people. Why? Because God judges wickedness. Sometime before the fall of Nineveh, Nahum preached a message that sounds much like hate to the ears of people familiar with Jesus' words to love our enemies. Now, are we to love our enemies? Absolutely. Then why are we to love our enemies, but God judges our enemies? Are those two true truths? Absolutely. There's a reason for that, and we're going to see it in the text. 
To the people of Nineveh's day, his message was one of, I'm sorry, to the people in Nahum's culture, the message was one of comfort and deliverance from oppressed people. For the oppressed had to be freed. And for that to happen, the oppressor had to be removed or knocked down to size. Nahum spoke about the end of the oppressor, Nineveh, in Nahum chapter 1, verse 1. The Bible says, in verse 1, he uses a few words. I'm going to go that way, all right? I'm sorry. Those words are, do you look at, look at the text with me, the oracle of God. How many see that? The oracle of Nineveh, it says, right? The book of Nahum, right? That God gave in a vision to Nahum. You see all those truths in there? And who is Nahum? He's the Elkalite. That first verse gives you a starting base of what he's talking about. First of all, an oracle. What about an oracle? Sounds like some kind of C.S. Lewis thing, right? Some kind of medieval woo thing. Well, an oracle is found in prophetic material. It refers to a divine word regarding the foreign nations. So for Israel, there are many prophets, and they call it prophecy. But when these prophets, prophets prophesied about people outside the people of God, how many get that? They're called oracles, not prophecy. Isaiah used them and used that term repeatedly, and every time it was dealing with foreign nations. Habakkuk used the same ter terminology when dealing with wicked individual. So it's not only about a nation, which is found in, in Isaiah and in Nahum. These are oracles. Basically, they're prophecies against a, a, uh, um, a foreign nation or a wicked nation or an anti-people of God. But it also can be used as individuals. And, and in Habakkuk, it, use, it uses it as a wicked individual, not a nation. The word also is used for oracles of salvation, truths about salvation. Amen? These are truths. The oracle or prophetic saying is when Hebrew prophesy, prophesy about a Gentile nation or individual. Interestingly, oracle is also equated with a burden. That doesn't make sense. How many love prophecy? One person, you're all liars. <laughs> yes, we love prophecy. We love, folks, isn't it the heartbeat of the church? Jesus is coming again. Right? We love prophecy because we know the oppressor is going to be destroyed and judged, and we know the oppressed will be finally set free and live with eternal peace with God. Amen. And by the way, eternal peace with God on this earth and in heaven. Amen. But for some reason, this term oracle in the Hebrew is not only talking about a prophetic word to a gentilic nation or individual, it also is equated with the word burden. And why would it be that way? Well, let me introduce you to a name or reintroduce you to a name called Jonah. Let me ask you, was Jonah given an oracle or a prophetic word to 
a Gentilic nation? Yes or no? Was it a burden to him? That's an easy question to be answered, is it not? It was a burden, which is probably, and we don't know all these things for sure, but it's probably equated with the speaker or writer being burdened to speak or write concerning Gentiles. Then he calls it a book. So there's the oracle. Now you, how many had, got, okay, 101 with that Hebrew word oracle, amen? All right, now, number two, the book. The book of Nahum prophecy is the only prophetic work described as a book in its title. This description lends us to believe that this work may have been produced initially as some sort of literature, like a scroll or a pamphlet. How many have ever seen those tracks around? That type of thing. Here, here's a track, Nineveh. You guys need to read this. <laughs> uh, we're going to be judged by God. So that's the book, the vision. This one's a little more difficult, especially living in modern days where visions can be any kind of weird, wonky, weird stuff. You know what I mean? Y- y'all saw Jesus in the cloud yesterday? <sighs> that's not what he's talking about. Vision, that is, as one commentator commentator puts it, the prophet perceived God's revelation with his mind's eye. Did God give Nahum the words of Nahum? Yes or no? Absolutely. Absolutely. A vision is an event through which the Lord spoke to a prophet. On the one hand, it refers to the things seen, the vision, or the appearance of the vision, Daniel chapter 7. On the other hand, it shows the effect that, in this case, God had on Nahum. He is encouraged. He is chosen. He is shocked. Not a visual image, but a word from God is received. The prophetic vision primarily involves a revelation of God and His Word, and only then a visual impact. In essence, you could put it down this way. This is basically inspiration. Now, if I were to ask you, what does inspiration look like? How many would be hard-pressed to give a perfect answer? Every one of us will. Sometimes it's referred to as vision. That's the point with Nahum. This God's inspired word. Just like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. God said, write this down. And guess what? They wrote this down. Jonah, or Nahum, and I'm going to have a problem remembering the word. Sorry, it's called tradition. (laughs) After, I don't know how long we spoke on Jonah, now it's Nahum. Don't worry, when we get to John, it'll be Nahum again. The excellent poetic form and imagery of this book was understood to be a direct result of God's inspiration. This is one of the 66 books of the Bible. Amen? The emphasis in the revelatory vision was on the revelation of the divine word which he had to proclaim. Nahum immediately gets to the point and identifies the general topic as Nineveh. Or at least that's who the judgment's going to be about. I would argue this. The whole book of Nahum is about Almighty God and who He is and what He does 
and why he does it. Frankly, that's the Christian life. If your Christian life is to do the works of the law, you've got it all wrong. If your Christian life is to make others better than better and correct them and, and, and you be the person that's in charge of all that, you've got it wrong. If you think you have got to keep the whole law and, and, and it's all up to you, you've got it all wrong. The Christian life is about knowing God. Because unless you know God, all of that is self-motivated, prideful nonsense. And so Nahum's going to help us know God. Now let's just be honest, in this world today, isn't God loving? Isn't God caring? Isn't God compassionate? You can go and Google up, does God love homosexuality? They print shirts about that. And what's your problem, you people that love Jesus? Jesus loved them. Jesus cared for them. Jesus cared for the, the, the murderers, and Jesus cared for all these people. Now, is, in, is there a sense where that God wants everyone everywhere to repent? But the point is they need to do what? And we're going to see this morning how that the world's view of God is absolutely, positively skewed. Majorly skewed. Nahum immediately gets to the point. Nahum, as the text now says in this first verse, it, 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 um, he is, his name means, in, it can mean in the Hebrew, comfort. Now this is kind of ironic. If the Hebrew word Nahum, and by the way, Nahum, there's also two other people in the Bible, and by the way, Nahum also comes up in the lineage of Joseph in Luke. Three, but we're not sure. Is that the same Nahum? Nahum is the root word for Nehemiah. Those are equated because of the words that are used there. He is also, and this one's really interesting. Do you remember King Menahem? He was the one that we talked about last week that ripped up the women of his own city. He was the king of Israel. Nah that's, that's the same name. It's the same root word for the name there. But Nahum, supposedly, the Greek word there, or the Hebrew word there, it means comfort. This is ironic, for Nahum, we will soon find out, is all about the wrath of God against the wicked people of Nineveh. So why comfort? Why is God using this? And by the way, isn't God awesome? <laughs> God's bringing in a prophet named Comfort to talk about the judgment of the wicked. That's what he's doing. Why? Because the people of God are comforted. The people of God are comforted. When you go through the Old Testament, you find these, these prophets are saying, Why? when, when? Will we, won't you just come and deal with this now? Why wait so long? You're going to hear them cry that over and over and over again. And then when it comes, thank you, Lord. Won't it be a great day when Jesus comes and says, come on, folks, let's get out of here. I have a banquet waiting for you. Come sit at the banquet. 
eat a dinner with me. Oh man, that's exciting. What about the people during the tribulation that are being, they are heavy on their heels, the world is. 144,000. Before that, there were people cut their heads off. For what? Are you a child of the king? Absolutely. Off with their head. All of a sudden, in the middle of the tribulation, there is this, in heaven, there's this huge influx of people. And they're saying, Why, O oh Lord, how long will you wait? How long will you wait? That's three and a half years into the tribulation, approximately. Revelation chapter 6. And God then sends judgment like the world has never seen. They th you thought Nineveh had it bad? <laughs> oh, I don't. Gomorrah was worse. Oh, no. The text literally says, so if you believe God and believe His Word, the likes that has never been seen before will happen in the last three and a half years of the tribulation. If you take Scripture normally, which I pray we do. By the way, Gomorrah, I was reading this week, this week, uh, do you know what Gomorrah means? The Greeks had that word Gomorrah, here's how they termed it. A pile of manure. Literally. A pile of manure. And it was. It's interesting how God takes sin and makes sure everybody realizes what a bunch of bung, right? All right, back to the text. So why comfort? Because, and to be honest with you, is Israel going to be comforted? with the judgment of Nineveh? Well, frankly, Israel, in a technical sense, can't be comforted. They don't longer exist. They're taken and they're gone. Nineveh did that. So what people of God is he comforting? And I will tell you this, he's not only comforting them, he's raising awareness that, wake up and smell the coffee, Judah. Look what I had Nineveh do to them in Israel. You are not that great yourself. Matter of fact, quite wicked. Watch what I do with Nineveh, your oppressor. So even though it's comforting, it's also, I better check. I better be introspective and say, hey, what do I need to change? What's my problems? The comfort is to Judah, though. Assyria has already eradicated Israel, the northern kingdom, and has oppressed Judah. And Judah desires to eradicate them also. But God steps in. The comfort is to Judah that God will destroy their enemy, which in turn will comfort Judah. There is no peace or comfort unless there is war and destruction. These words are the antithesis of each other. And it is very important that we all understand practically peace and comfort are truly understood when war and destruction have been experienced. His message, and, and frankly, that's, that's the problem with America today. 
Things have been so easy that we want them easier. Folks, life is a struggle. We work through life. We laboriously labor through life. His message. His destruction of the oppressor, Nineveh, provided comfort to the oppressed people of the ancient Near East suffering under a heavy yoke of tyranny and barbar barbarianism. This is an important statement. For not only will Judah be comfort at the destruction of Syria, but the whole Near Eastern world would be comforted. Babylon was no peoples of God. Amen? Yet, they also will experience peace just as those surrounding the affected area of Syria. One commentator, his name is Heflin, points to the historical setting showing that the prophet sent his spent his entire life under Assyrian domination. And so was a man of abiding faith. Nahum had to be a man of faith to be constantly under the oppression of Assyria. Constantly under the thumb of Nineveh. He was a man of abiding faith with the overwhelming belief that evil cannot stand forever. And that is a truth we must understand. Evil will not stand forever. Amen. Evil will be judged. Evil will be taken care of. It might not be the way you want to, but it's the way God desires. And it will happen. It will happen. Nahum was a man of righteous indignation, incensed by Syria's inhumanity to people. Many interpreters of the, of the book of Nahum today use a scheme of recontexting the book. How many understand that? Recontext. When, when they start interpreting Nahum, they recontext it. How many, how many get this? The interpretation is the interpretation based in its historical context. There are many applications you can use to your day, life today. But do not take this culture and impregnate it into that context and then think you're going to get what God's trying to say. That's truly insanity. According to this guy, he says, listen, in interpreting Nahum today, people use a scheme of recontexting the book, basically pushing the original context of the book through the filter of our present culture. They would say, God is a God of love. God is a God of compassion, forgiveness, Butterflies, flowers, and pixie dust. Did you get that? That's the God that this America serves today. I'm telling you, that's all they view God as. It is so wicked that most of the church today, according to another commentator named Barker, wishes that Nahum were not even in the canon. This isn't love, compassion, butterflies, and pixie dust. 
If that's what you're gonna, if that's what you're looking for in Nahum, exit stage right. This isn't gonna be helpful because that's not who God is. Now, is God loving? Absolutely. Is he? Does he comfort? Does he give mercy? Yes, yes, yes. But he also judges. He also condemns. And here's a that our America hates. Isn't that interesting? You can hate what you think is hating, but don't you dare hate. Did you follow that? God does hate. Exactly in the text. So, most of the church today wish that Nahum were not even in the canon. It has gotten so bad that commentators like J.P. Smith and German commentators like Jepson and Mark, they are identifying Nahum, follow this, as a false prophet. So because God is going to be talking about how he judges the wicked, that's off the charts, that's wrong, so Nahum is a false prophet. In essence, their view of God is so bad that they want to kick books out of the Bible. That's not where this church is. And we do not believe that's where God wants us to be. Every word is edification and our understanding of who God is. And frankly, as I've just proven as we started this preaching opportunity, the book has almost totally been ignored by the modern church. So when did you hear it preached? All right. So once or twice? Or twice. How many of you have been in churches more than 10 years? I would guess most of us have. So let's just be honest. Probably more than 5,000 years of us as a church being in all different places, if you conglomerate it all together, how many would think that's fair? There's been two sermons on Nahum. How many think that's a problem? I'm guilty. I've never preached name in my life. And the only reason I'm preaching it now, it comes right on the heels of Jonah and fulfills Jonah's prophecy. And praise the Lord for that. Its message of judgment does not fit the picture we want to have of a loving and forgiving God. So therefore, get rid of it. I think so. I don't know. <laughs> so where exactly? So Jonah, at the, par, the, the second part of this last verse, Jonah's from Elkosh. Where is Elkosh? Please, I've said this over and over and over again, and this has to be understood. And I've got to tell myself over and over again, because I, I get so into things, like, oh, this is the way it is. When we aren't positive, or the text doesn't tell us black and white, there are three words that we must 
told to. I don't know. I, that's okay. If God wanted me to know, He'd put something different in there. But obviously, we don't know. So in this case, we don't know. And the debates rage on. They take pages and pages. And I don't even know why you want to do that, to be honest. But for, as we go through this book, I will take the traditional description of Elkosh to be Capernaum, which means city of Nahum. And if you differ, if you differ from me, that's okay. You can be wrong. All of that was set up for that poem. Okay, you got that? And I'm being facetious there. Got it? <laughs> We don't know, so don't be dogmatic. But for our studies, we're going to say it's Capernaum if it comes up again. You can disagree, and that's okay. He is mentioned only in this verse and in Luke chapter 3, verse 25. Though the, as I said at the beginning, the, the names, the same root word is found in Nehemiah and Menahem, the king Menahem, the Israel king. In Nahum's day, Nineveh served as the capital of Syria, which had dominated the ancient Near Eastern for a century. The armies of Assyria, with their ruthless methods, struck fear in the lives of people of that time. Nineveh's destruction would make the people of the world clap their hands. Nahum chapter 3, verse 19. The people of Israel and Judah especially suffered from the onslaughts of, Assyria's, of the Assyrians. For this reason, Jonah rebelled against going to Nineveh to preach repentance. He and many of Nineveh judged instead of forgiven. A brief history of the time of Nahum's writing. Just to conclude before we get into chapter verse 2, just so we got an idea of exactly this time. In 732, Tiglath-Pilassar's armies have ravaged the northern tribes of Israel. In 722, Assyria besieged and captured Samaria. The cruel Assyrian policy of exile wreaked social havoc on the northern kingdom. What happened? The Assyrians removed many people from Samaria, all of them, frankly, that they could get, and exiled them to all the father foreign lands. And at the same time, they brought other captured peoples from other lands and brought them into the northern kingdom i.e., a Palestinian is just a political term. They're people. And to be honest with you, Israel has much more history in that region than any people have ever had. Don't get duped by political jargons of not understanding pol politicians and newscast people. Does that make sense? So literally, Assyria conquered them, took out Israel, and replaced them with Iranis, Indianese, Egyptians, whatever. They brought them into the land. And why did they do that? I tell you what, there's no insurrections that way. It's not their land. So there's no history to it. So they can just live as the Assyrians want them to live. And then pay duties, of course. 
The action effectively ended the possibility of a revolt when they brought all these other people in. During the reign of Manasseh, who's King Manasseh? I like to say during the reign of King Mess, it's a better way of saying it, in the southern kingdom, that's where he's the king, Assyria exercised effective control over Judah. Assyrian images filled the temple. Manasseh encouraged worship of Assyrian deities and acquiesced to Assyrian policy. In 663, Assyria accomplished the unthinkable, conquering and destroying the great city of Thebes. Where's that? Thebes, Egypt. Assyria seemed invincible. In other words, you could practically apply that much like Assyria kind of ruled the world, America is the same way today. Nahum prophesied at the crossroads of history. The, the ruler of the world is Assyria, capital city, Nineveh. Nahum proclaimed a word that came to pass, and he called the people to authenticate the faith in God. Nahum demonstrated that he knew the Lord God of Israel. He described God as one who judges the guilty and gives respite to the oppressed. He fulfilled the highest calling of prophecy in looking beyond the facts of the news to discern and proclaim the intentions of God. In other words, here is the king of the world. They rule everything. They have the greatest everything, the greatest tanks, the greatest armaments, the greatest everything, the chariots, all that. They are the king. And what is this little guy named Nahum who comes from a completely destroyed city now, Capernaum, in northern <clears throat> what we know as Israel, but the Israel kingdom is no longer there. And what does he say? Yod's going to judge you. Oh, my goodness. That takes faith, does it not? That takes faith. Nahum's book encouraged Judah. God delivers the oppressed. He punishes the oppressors. Nahum's message brought hope to a people without hope. Announcing the victory of the Lord over the wicked ones. Nahum's message demonstrates that the Lord is the Lord of history. He works His will in the world in His own way, according to His own time. For our world, the message of Nahum is timely. God is at work. The forces of evil will not succeed indefinitely. So, who answers the question, that all of us need to be striving to learn who is God? Who is God? Verses 2 through 14 deal with this very issue. Who is God? The greatest question of human history involves knowing God. Who is God? What is He like? In Genesis, God is Creator. He is graceful in taking them out of the garden. He is fierce in His judgment. In Exodus, in Exodus, God is merciful. God keeps His Word. God is Savior of His people. But at the same time, He judges the army of Egypt. He's not one or the other. He's both. And to be honest with you, that's misspeak too. He's not one or the other. He's all. 
That's why he says, I am. I am. In Isaiah, he is the sovereign Lord of the universe, the holy creator God who is incomparable in the heavens. In Nahum, he is slow to anger, but yet he judges the guilty. He avenges the oppressed and he comforts the powerless. is exalting God for who He is and what will be done to those who oppose His people. Why do you think God says, I will bless them that bless thee and I will curse them that curse thee? That's not up to Israel to do because God will. God will. Because God is a God of mercy and judgment. In essence, God is all-powerful and is more able to deliver His people than anybody can ever imagine. Somewhat ironically, the hymn praises God for His judgment. When's the last time we opened our hymn book to the judgment of God and sang that song? Here it is in Nahum. Why? For the judgment of the enemies brings salvation to God's people. That is why. So what is God? Although spoken against Nineveh, Nahum does not specifically mention Nineveh until chapter 2, verse 8, apart from verse 1. So part verse 1, that's the title of the book. How many get that? It's a book. Some type of literature. The title page has Nineveh in it. The first chapter begins with God and ends with God. But here's the problem that I don't think many of us would understand. How many of you have, oh, I know this, I don't even, don't answer, don't answer. We have multiple versions of the Bible in your hand right now. I mean, there are multiple different versions. NIV blew it in this text. And I'll explain why. And by the way, many of these versions, and I don't know which ones y'all have and all that, I have no idea. But I will tell you, many of these versions are simply commentaries. And they should be put on a shelf and get a real version of Scripture to read what God says and not what people think it says. And I'm not a King James only, I'm far from that. There are many good versions but get a good one. Here's the deal. The first part of the book is intended to focus on God's greatness. And it is unfortunate the NIV adds Nineveh to the text nine times where it's not mentioned in the original text. So what did NIV do? This chapter is all about God and His greatness. Unless you read NIV. Because Nineveh is replacing God. Now, it doesn't replace the name of God. I'm not doing that. It, it replaces our mindset. It's no longer about God alone. It's about Nineveh. How many understand that? That is a commentary. That is not a version. That text. I don't know about the rest of it, but this text is a problem. By the way, we need to be careful about what constitutes a version of Scripture. 
There are some that are so far off, there are simply commentaries and opinions at best. The NIV in this text went too far and hindered the intended focus of the text, i.e., God's greatness. This is all about God. In every age and against every oppressor, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. All those who oppose the Lord receive the brunt of His wrath. Much of Nahum's message in this section fits the description of the Lord throughout Israel's history. The description of the Lord is slow to anger and not leaving the guilty unpunished occurred with regularity in the Old Testament. The description of God, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on His foes and maintains His wrath against His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storms and the clouds are the dust of His feet. Woo! Put that on a woke TV station and see how that works. That is not the God that is being relayed to this world, this Christian nation called America. That is a God of hate. And we can't have hate. So let's get rid of the book. I will tell you this, if commentators are doing that, what do you think our fellow Americans are doing with that? The first two verses of Nahum's message set the tone of the entire book. Nahum based his hope on the presence of God in the world. The oppressing nation would be removed because of the sovereignty of God. If God were to give a pass for Assyria, not overthrow them, that would send the message that he is not true to himself. The character of God means that evil cannot triumph in the world. Amen? Why did God throw out Adam and Eve out of the garden? You can answer. Why did God throw Adam and Eve out of the garden? Why did God banish and mark Cain? Why did God destroy the world with a flood? Why did God scatter the people of Babel? Why did God utterly destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? You remember the heap of manure that we just talked about. Why did God send His people into captivity? Why did God set His people free from Egypt? Why did God throw the Egyptian army in the Red Sea? Why did God swallow up 3,000 of His people in Mount Sinai? Why did God call Israel to wipe out an entire geographical area? Why? Sin. But in that list, there is two different things. There is discipline and there is judgment. And they are two different things. God sent His people into captivity to discipline them because they are His people. God sent the army of Egypt at the bottom of the Red Sea in judgment because they are not His people. Does that make sense? All these and many more historical events in Scripture so as show us that God will discipline His people and God will eradicate the wicked. 
If God does not destroy evil, God cannot be a righteous God. He cannot be a faithful God. He cannot be a merciful God. He cannot be a God of peace. He cannot be never changing. He cannot be a holy God. God has no choice but to destroy wickedness. We must understand that God is the one and only true God and is in perfect balance between love and judgment, peace and destruction, mercifulness and discipline. Applicably, our problem is balancing these truths. Let's just be honest. We are not God. Amen. And we cannot balance between love and judgment perfectly. I can guarantee you, or I'm the moron, and I'm willing to accept that, I can guarantee you every one of us that are parents have disciplined our children wrongly at one time. True? I guarantee you we did not discipline when we should have disciplined under the guise of love also. Why? Because we're not perfect. Here's why. We don't know God well enough. That's really the issue. Will we ever get there in heaven when we're with God? But the reality is our problem is balancing these truths. And the reason that we have a problem balancing between love and, and, and judgment or, or peace and, and anger or mercifulness and discipline, the reason we have this balancing problem is that we're not God. And there's only one. But we do have what he says. And we can become like him more and more each day. Let me explain. God hates sin. Is that a true statement? God hates sin. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and because of that we're short of God. He hates sin. Not only do we find it there, but also God hates sin. Listen to Psalm chapter 11. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let me ask you, does Psalm 11 tell us that God hates people? Does. He hates the wicked. He waits those that love violence, which are the wicked. These are true statements. God hates sin. But God doesn't just hate sin. He hates sin. He knows the heart of the sinner. Does God know the heart of the sinner? And, God, and therefore, he can hate the sinner. How many, get, how many are following this? God hates sin. God knows the heart of the sinner. And therefore, God and only God can hate the sinner. How many follow that? I think in my life, and I'm guessing in all of our lives, we try to play God in some of these ways. There's only one God. And because he knows the heart, he alone can hate people. How many get this? We'll keep going and try to explain it even better. Notice extremely important. He knows the heart. 
that's exclusive to God, and the result, hate the sinner, which is obviously exclusive to God. Now let me ask you, are we to hate sin? Are Christians to hate sin? Amen and amen. Matthew 17, verse 8 and 9. And if you're, this is how much we hate sin. We are to hate sin. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. That's kind of hatred. And throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 gives us another one. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immorality immoral portion sins against his own body. Colossians chapter 3. Sin is to be put to death. Christians, we are to hate sin. I'm glad that two of you agree with that. Christians are to hate sin. Just like God hates sin. The problem is, we can't know the heart of the sinner and there to hate the person is not up to us. That's only God's. That's exclusive to God, not us. We're to be loving our enemies. Do you see the difference? Do you see why love your enemies and hear the judgment of Nahum are in the same thing? Because we fulfill a different role than God Almighty. And folks, we're not God. We are not God. <clears throat> Eric Raymond does a great job with this. He says it this way. Do you hate sin? Do you hate what sin is doing? Every tear, every ounce of pain comes from sin. It fuels every hearse. Every grieving widow wails because of its might. Sin provokes every wail of hurt. Every bit of shame is sourced in sin. Every regret, every burn mark upon the soul is the handiwork of sin. Every biting word is loaded with the sting of sin. Every prideful thought is is concocted upon the conveyor belt of sin. Every bit of injustice is deputized, deputized by general sin. Every betrayed heart aches because sin has made its presence known. Every bit of corruption is a footprint of sin. Every bit of neglect demonstrates sin's, at sin's attention. It's all sin. Sin is the greatest evil on this, on this planet. And then he asks the question, will you hate Sin or not. And then comes the dagger sentence. Please listen closely. We cannot domesticate sin like it's our pet, but rather we must, must hate it and its effects. Oof. I'll say that again. We cannot domesticate sin like it's our pet, but rather must hate it and its effect. Yes, we are to absolutely hate sin. The problem is, we hate everyone else's sin as we domesticate our own. True? We don't keep that in our forefront, and I'm guilty of it like anybody else. We use these derogatory terms to talk about other people's sin. What about our own sin? 
You see, we can't hate people. God does that. That's not our prerogative. That's not our position. We are absolutely right to hate sin. The problem is we hate everybody else's sin as we domesticate our own sins. Yes, we can and must hate all sin. Absolutely. But this is where we diverge from God's dealing with sin. Both God and man are to hate sin and do hate sin, Lord willing. But God alone knows the sinner's heart. We cannot. God alone can judge the heart. We cannot. God alone knows and judges the heart. That is why we alone can hate sin. That's why He alone can hate sin. He can hate the sinner and He can condemn them. No one else can, nor should they. Practically speaking, does God, and this is, a, this is a tough question. I hope you got your thinking caps on. Does God hate the sin but love the sinner? How many have heard that? Hate the sin, love the sinner. Does God hate the sin but love the sinner? Here's the answer. It depends. You say, What? No, it depends. i got to get back to my notes so I don't lose this because this is important. Does God hate the sin but love the sinner? It depends who is sinning, right? Does God hate the sins of his people? Yes or no? Yes. Does he hate his people? No. There's not a text in the scripture that says that. Does God hate the sins of the unregenerate? Yes or no? Yes. Does he hate the unregenerate? Yes. They are the enemies. With God, his actions are perfectly balanced because of who he is. Well, immediately our mind was, well, well God so loved the world. What does that mean? Well, let me ask you. We just read a text that shows he hates. We just read Nahum. <laughs> let alone Psalm 111 or something like that, that talks about him hating the sinners and the ones that love evil and hating them. How can he hate them but love the world? Does that maybe make us think about what we traditionally thought of what John 3.16 actually says? It should. Let me ask you. Well, let's keep going. I don't want to... We normally take that verse, God still love the world, that God loves all people of the world, right? We are all big, one happy family of God on this earth. You know, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Every one of us is. Well, that is blatantly false. We just read verses that say the exact opposite. So now what? How do we deal with this? Well, here's the reality. I do not care you align yourself as an Arminian or a Calvinist. It does not matter to me, although I would debate you. How many understand that? And by the way, every one of you are either an Arminian or a Calvinist in aspects of your life. You are. So let's just forget that stupid argument for right now. I don't care 
if you are an Armenian, if you align yourself with an Armenian or a Calvinist, the basic principle is the same. God knows his children. We do not know his children as God does. Is that a true statement? God knows his children. He knows his own. We do not know who are his. This issue between Arminian and Calvinists is how they define the word no. And I don't care about that right now. That's irrelevant to the discussion here. It is irrelevant to the conclusion. And the conclusion is this. However you define that word no, either way, God has perfect information that we do not have. True? Whether you like it or not, God, at bare minimum, if you want to be an Arminian, bare minimum, he knows who his children will be. If you're a Calvinist, he's chosen who those people will be. Either way, that information is the same, is it not? It's the exact same. And God loves them. True? He loves them. Therefore, it is righteous and holy for God to hate the sin and the unregenerate sinner. But it is not for us. We do not know what God knows. To not allow God to be God of his character and function as destroyer of wrong is absolutely insane. Another commentator says it this way. To allow, uh, 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 I'm sorry, to, to allow God to be God of his character and function as destroyer of the wrong, this is what he says about that, is to acquiesce to the present corrupt state of the world, to accept the sinful status quo and simply put up with whatever is done by selfish and prideful and corrupted men and women. In essence, he says, and we need to let God be God. That means he hates, he loves. He has, gives peace, he gives war. He judges, he's merciful. All those are true. You can't just rip one out and say, that's my God. Amen. You can't pick and choose which part of God you want. If you're doing that, who's sovereign, God or you? Who's the big dog, God or you? By this, this can only be fixed by God. Why? God's vengeance has been paid by Christ for his people. Let me tell you, this is why vengeance is so important. We're going to get to that right now. But vengeance, that's what he's talking about, right? In the first three verses, four verses in this thing. God's vengeance has already been paid by Christ for who? All believers. All believers. What about those whose blood has not covered? What about those people who will not come to saving knowledge of Christ? Where does God's vengeance, how does God have vengeance against them? 
How many see these two worlds that we're living in? They will pay for their vengeance. God will vengeance on them themselves. God's vengeance on our sins has been paid by the blood of Christ. They will spend eternity in hell. So let me ask you, is it possible that God loves the people in hell? I'm going to say that's a pretty, that has such a deep answer. By what I'm reading and understanding about God, no. He loves his own. And he will judge those who are not his own. And he will judge them with eternal fire. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The, the first thing that says that God is jealous. We're going to skip that. Not that we're going to skip it totally. We'll come back to it. But why is God jealous and why does it say that? Well, it's because of God takes vengeance. In other words, and young people, you will love this because this is your culture. Listen closely. God is the Greatest avenger. Did you hear that? That's the term, by the way. He is the avenger. It's used three times in this verse. Once as an adjective and twice as the verb of his clause. He takes vengeance. Carries the idea of continuous activity. It must be associated with maintenance of justice. Lawfulness and justice. and By the way, this is so awesome. Everybody's screaming for justice, 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 justice. The only way justice comes is by God's vengeance. There is no justice apart from God's judgment. Amen. There isn't. But they don't want that. <laughs> Literally, if Jesus were here, they'd kill him. They would kill him. Because they wouldn't like what he's saying. It is God's prerogative at times given to people used as instruments. He uses people as he will to vengeance on others. To carry out the vengeance. He sometimes gives them over to other authorities and legitimacies. But he's still absolutely in charge. Vengeance. When someone has the right to be vengeful, who is that? Who is right to be vengeful? Who else? Nobody. Nobody apart from God. Nobody. Why? Because you don't know the heart. We don't know the heart. It's impossible to know the heart. The use of vengeance then expresses that God is absolute, positively supreme king and sovereign and one and only and I am and the only one. Amen.
Either by him or through him, biblical vengeance is administered. Nineveh had failed to acknowledge this and had taken vengeance against the nations into their own hands, and God dealt with them. God's vengeance in the Old Testament can be described as as a retribution of God. It can't be that. As the sovereign king, faithful to his covenant, he stands up for the vindication of his glorious name in in a judging and fighting mode while watching over the maintenance of his justice and acting to save his people. God's judgment isn't, oh, I'm going to do that to them. It's not immediate. It's not, he's long-suffering, right? He's got a plan that is perfectly laid out, right? He's not reactive. That's what I'm saying. He is active, and his actions include vengeance. This is not revenge. It's a consequence of his holiness. It's not revenge. It's a consequence of his love. It's a consequence of his wrath and his jealousy. All God's perfect characteristics demand vengeance. What did he say? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. In the world are we vigilantes. Or even applaud that. This is God's. It's not ours. Psalm 94 is clear on this. This work is only of God. Only he can dole out the proper punishment. Emphasize the work of God to defeat his enemies. That was his whole point. God is the greatest avenger of all. He is one, and I love this. This is a, an old commentator that said this. God is the greatest avenger of all. He is the avenger of avengers. He's the only one. Interesting that we're modeling our ch- in front of our children that there are many Avengers. That's kind of scary. It can be. Be careful. The God of vengeance is a threatening picture only to those who want to be their own gods and rule the earth. But to those who trust God, it is comfort and affirmation that he truly is sovereign. How many of you want to serve and love a sovereign God? And so then when God is not sovereign, what are you loving? He needs to show his sovereignty. Amen? Therefore, we pray for God's vengeance. Why? Because we don't like him. No. Because we want to know you're on the throne still. You ever been in situations? Lord, I need you. Are you there? Are you still on the phone? Well, I don't know. I, I, I don't see you working. Look at our country. It's going to hell. Stop it. Maybe that's not God's choice. God is sovereign. He is growing every one of us day by day if we seek Him. Without God's vengeance, there is no justice. The righteous, the Bible says in Psalm 58.10, the righteous will rejoice 
when he sees the vengeance, he will, this is unbelievable, this verse would not fly and will be eradicated from any public school, any governmental, anything. Listen to this. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. <laughs> That's kind of gory. That's kind of in your face. God's justice is needed. His judgment is needed for justice to be seen. But that's not what this world wants. We just want to love everybody into justice. Right? Now, are we to love all of our, everybody else? Yes or no? Absolutely. We love them and we share the gospel with them. It's God's prerogative to do whatever else he wants with them. It's not ours. Without God's vengeance, there is no justice. We just saw that. Another, the NIV says it this way, the righteous will be glad when they are avenged, when they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked. God's justice, judgment, brings comfort to the oppressed. God's vengeance, without God's vengeance, there is no future. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 32, Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. Psalm 149, To execute vengeance upon the heathen, and punish upon, punishments upon the people to bind their kings with chains and their nobles in fetters of iron to execute upon them judgment written the honor have all this this honor have all his saints praise ye the lord in other words when the bad guy gets put in jail that comforts the believer does that make sense so let me ask you And I don't remember the date now, but 2001, 2000, 2020, I think, maybe even. Our capital burnt down. The capital of the city, of the state. How many understand that? Minneapolis burnt down. Was there justice done? Was it justice for those people to burn down other people's belongings, livelihoods, homes, whatever. Yes or no? No. <clears throat> if the government were following God's word, would justice have been done? Would they be in jail? Would they be paying back all that is due to those that they hurt? Yes. They're free right now and being paid, some of them, by the government. Doesn't that make you feel all good inside? Again, we're talking feelings. Mr. Gaiman hates that. I get that. <laughs> but the reality is we know that's wrong. Criminals deserve judgment. They deserve God's justice. Is that up to us to go and take care of that? No, it's up for God, not us. And God will have his day. 
And when that day comes, there's a song that sings, Oh, that will be glory. Be glory for me. When at his feet I bow before his knees. Oh, that will be glory. Is that not true? Judgment is his, the Lord. God is a God of judgment and a God of comfort. Are what we learn when we study the book of Nahum. How many are excited about learning that? Is the table set from chapter 1 already, verses 1, 2, and 3, basically? There's more on 3 that we will continue on. <clears throat> Before we close, I just want to give it practical, and I tried to do that through the text or through the message. It is not right for us to hate people. Scripture never says that. Do we hate sin? Yeah. But let's first hate our own sin before we start hating on, and instead of hating on other people's sin. Shall we be helpful and encourage and get alongside and try to help them along in their life? Absolutely love them. Love them. But I know I have not always loved certain sins and made fun of them and hated on them. That's not my role, but God's. That's not ours. It's not the torch to carry. And all that does, literally, is push people away from God. Love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you and despitefully use you. Let God be God. And we're just His kids, serving Him and serving others the best we can as we are growing in the knowledge of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Mr. Gaiman, can you close us in a word of prayer? just a moment I'll have you stand and I'll close our time in prayer following the service today we're having our church dinner I hope you plan on staying and enjoying sharing a meal together with people of the church so please stand let me pray and we'll be dismissed father thank you for your goodness thank you for the power of your word thank you that uh, we are reminded today that we need to continually study your word that we would know you and then we know how to live for your glory in jesus name amen